Do you ever look at successful people and get stuck in their highlight reel? And then you look at your own mess ups and feel alone, broken, and not cut out for the job? If you've ever felt this way, I highly recommend listening to an amazing podcast hosted by author and entrepreneur, Liz Bohannon. Plucking Up is a show that talks about failure and the surprising counterintuitive mindsets that help us overcome them. The best part is you get to hear from celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders in their own field on how they moved past their pluck ups, you know, those mistakes and wrong turns, in order to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. Hear powerhouse guests like Elizabeth Gilbert, Morgan Harper Nichols, Ali Webb, Ariana Huffington, and many more get real vulnerable about the blemished parts of their journey towards success. Subscribe to Plucking Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now for the season one finale of Thread the Needle. This story includes discussion of systemic racism, racist behavior such as racial slurs, and white supremacy. Listener discretion is advised. Zone Cassius ran the only restaurant in Batavia a tiny town in southeast Iowa with a population of 500 residents. In this quiet farming community, people generally act nice and neighborly to one another. When driving through Batavia, tidy rows of homes quickly give way to rows of corn. You could easily mistake the city hall building for a garage, and you'll miss the downtown if you blink. Zone is black. As of the last census, Batavia is over 99% white. Growing up in Chicago, Zone had experienced his fair share of racism, but even so, he wasn't prepared for the reception he received in this small Iowa town. That racism is, it's a hard pill to swallow here because it exists really strong. A BP truck stop was the only other option for food in Batavia, and Zone said he watched the townspeople go there instead. The town doesn't support me. People right across the street will go to the BP gas station and buy a $6 burger, but won't buy my fresh $3 burger. The mayor has not been in my restaurant, and I've been here almost two years. So, yeah, that's what I'm, I experience here. They want to see me fail. They want to. You're listening to Thread the Needle, a podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of our lives. I'm your host, Donna Cleveland. 2020 will go down in history as not only the year of the coronavirus pandemic, but also as a year of racial reckoning. My hometown in Iowa is just a few hours drive from Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed by police in May. Over the summer, in the midst of the protests, I came across a study that said that if you're black, the Midwest is one of the worst places to live in the U.S. While Midwesterners are known for being neighborly with slogans like Iowa nice, it turns out that flyover country harbors a history of racist policies and practices, the legacy of which we're still living with today. The result is that racial inequality in the Midwest is greater than anywhere else in the country. In this episode, we'll look at what it's really like to live in the Midwest if you're a person of color, both in rural settings like Batavia and in bigger cities like Minneapolis and Chicago. 
we'll uncover the historical context that got us here today and explore what we can do about it now. This story begins with Zone. It was 2018, and he just opened his restaurant in Batavia. It was called Cassius Italian Cuisine. It was summer, and Zone had just moved to southeast Iowa with his wife to be near her family. One night that summer, he overheard a conversation from the kitchen. A woman came into my establishment and was asking my 16-year-old server why she's working for a black man. Why are you working for this guy? You know, you know, black, they don't know how to treat people and they treat their own people like crap. And, you know, it's just a matter of time. And, you know, yeah, you better watch your pay. And, you know, it's just, I hear this in, the, in my kitchen. I hear this. So it's not bashful. She's not intoxicated. She's just voicing her opinion. So after she was asked to leave, she basically went in my restrooms and just peed all over my walls and on the floor. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was a bad experience. My 16-year-old actually offered to clean it up. So she said, you know, it's, you shouldn't have to deal with that kind of stuff. And the, the, the town committee came to talk to me and tell me that that's not what the town is about. I'm like, well, pretty much seems like it is. Last summer, Zone said the sheriff was notified of suspicious activity outside his restaurant. In reality, some of Zone's friends, who happened to be black, were visiting him while he was recovering after having a heart attack. Growing up in Chicago, Zone had experienced everything from white people throwing rocks at him when he walked through their neighborhoods to police beating him when he was 12 years old. I got ball spots, you know, getting hit in the head with billy clubs by the police. We got handled differently, and we knew it. It became normal to get grabbed by the police and thrown on top of a car at the age of 12 and put in handcuffs to sit in the back of a car while they run your name. And it, it almost became normal. Iowa, on the other hand, has a reputation for being nice. While Zone didn't experience outright violence like he did as a kid, the racism was overt, he said. It's not hidden. I'm so conditioned by it because I've seen this all my life. So it's like, oh, it's just white people being white people. Viuda Lynn Herman is a longtime Batavian, and she said she wasn't surprised by the lack of support from the town. Farmers don't do a lot of fine dining. And then he's a black man on top of it in small town Iowa. That's why I didn't think he was going to have a snowball's chance in hell, so to speak. (laughs) It's like, this man is nuts. (laughs) What I told him when he came was, oh boy, you got a hard hill to climb in this town. One other black family have I ever seen in this whole town. And I have lived in this area on and off all my life. It's a prejudiced area. Viuda has worked as a janitor at factories around southeast Iowa and says she's encountered racism against Black and Hispanic workers on a regular basis. Working in the factories, I usually don't last more than a couple of years because I won't let people use the N-word. And so Vuda put it together when she saw Batavians avoiding Zone's restaurant. While Zone had customers from neighboring towns, few locals showed up. Vuda had seen restaurants come and go and said this was different treatment than she'd seen in the past. There's one restaurant. When white people opened it up, there was that rush to be there, and people of the town came out. They didn't do that with him. 
And I felt like it was partially because he was black. Did they verbalize it? No, but it was quite telling. Last month, a couple of weeks after I talked to Zone, he closed down his restaurant in Batavia for good. He's going to reopen in Burlington, a bigger city a couple of hours away, where he's hoping for better luck. In a few minutes, we'll hear from a historian who published the study last year on the state of racial inequality in the Midwest. He'll put Zone's story in context. But first, I wanted to share more experiences of Midwestern racism. Literary artist Tamika Cage Conley is a graduate of the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop. I met Tamika at a poetry reading in Iowa City a few years ago. I was not only struck by Tamika's powerful poetry, but also by a phrase she used during the question and answer section after the poetry reading. I remember her describing what she called the demure white supremacy of the Midwest. That term stuck with me. And so I called her up to ask her more about it. In the Midwest, we have to get over ourselves and say, first of all, why is it that everybody predominantly here looks the same? Why do we have this homogenous culture? If I think about the Midwestern white person as a character, I would say that the character is neighborly. The character is a good Samaritan. The character is oblivious. The character is safe. None of those things, quote unquote, look like a racist. But when you really start getting underneath there, what happens though when I'm living right next door to you? What happens when whatever privileges you believe that your whiteness affords you are also available to me? When people start moving into your neighborhood, that's when you really have to start thinking about who you are. Like Zone observed in Batavia, Tamika noticed a form of racism that was less upfront than what she experienced growing up in Louisiana, but no less harmful. And then, just like with Zone, there were times the racism was so clear, she didn't have to read between the lines to see it. My best friend and I had the police called on us at a snow cone shop here in Iowa City uh, two summers ago. He had inadvertently leaned on this woman's car. He's, he's really a fantastic gentleman. If she would have just said, excuse me, you're leaning on my car. He would have said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But she was extremely rude and she shooed him away as if you would do an insect. And what I heard that she didn't say was, would you get off of my car, nigger? She did not say it, but it was understood. And I heard it. And being a black woman from the South, I know when somebody thinks of you as a reduced human being. And so I had every intention of getting in the car, driving away. But the revolutionary in me just wouldn't let me do that. And so I walked over to her. I was extremely cordial. And I just simply said to her, I do not like the way you spoke to my friend. And we had words. And I eventually said, lady, you're a racist. And because I called her a racist, she proved the racist in her by calling the police on us. There was so much fear between when I realized she was calling the cops and when they arrived, because my three-year-old son at the time was in the car. Tamika and her family made it safely out of that situation, but it left a lasting impression. The bottom line? The Midwest wasn't such a friendly place, unless you were white. 
It was also a place that became friendlier the more you conformed. That's what Alejandra Hiron learned when she immigrated to Iowa from Guatemala when she was eight years old. I used to tell my mom, I feel like I'm in a hospital. She's like, why do you feel like you're in a hospital? I was like, because everything is white and sterile. As she learned to speak English, Alejandra began to discover ways to fit in with the other kids. I was the only person of color in my entire grade at that time. The parents didn't really address me, neither did the teachers, because I just wasn't in that group. The way that my friends kind of tried to get me to be part of their group or emphasize that I was part of the group was because they would make jokes like, oh, you're a coconut. Um, and at first I was like, what is a coconut? I've never heard of that. And they were like, well, basically you're brown on the outside, but white on the inside. And I think that was like their way of like trying to feel like they could relate to me because I obviously didn't look like them. I never talked about my culture, where I came from. I knew I had to bring out like, quote unquote, the whiteness in me to be able to be part of the group a little bit. Alejandra's little sister was in kindergarten when they immigrated. There were kids that would pull her hair and tell her, go back to your country, you're dirty. For like a kindergartner to like hear that, that really broke my sister. It was really hard for her to deal with that afterwards. And she was just really quiet afterwards because she didn't want to be told that she wasn't good enough to be here. Alejandra is 25 years old now, and she's proud of her Guatemalan roots. She said she makes sure to embrace more of her culture, but that it's still a struggle with all the comments people make. She said it's not uncommon to get questions like this. Do you guys have bathrooms in your country? Do you guys have cars? Um, do you guys speak Mexican or Guatemalan? There's a lot of like passive aggressiveness too. So it'll just kind of be like a backhanded compliment. You actually don't really look that Latin. You look like you could be from Egypt. In their mind, that's like a compliment, but it's kind of like, what are you trying to say though? <laughs> or your English is really good for an immigrant, you know, stuff like that. I sometimes feel like I can't really be fully myself because I do have a different like Latin side and Latin people are like really like enthusiastic and really colorful and really out there and really open. And I feel like in the Midwest, it's more conservative. So I don't wanna like stand out and I don't want to give people a reason to make a stereotype out of me or push me out of the social group, whatever. So I feel like I always have to kind of tone myself down a little bit. Stories like Zones, Alejandra's, and Tamika's fit into a larger story about race in the Midwest. Historian Colin Gordon has made it his mission to understand this story as a professor at the University of Iowa and as a research consultant for the Iowa Policy Project. In a report he published last fall for the Iowa Policy Project, Gordon found profound levels of racial inequality in the Midwest and he uncovered two main causes. The first is a long history of residential segregation, and the second is the collapse of economic opportunities. These two factors have made racial inequality worse in the Midwest than anywhere else in the country, even the South. Gordon pointed out that people in the Midwest like to tell a different story. When Money Magazine or Forbes or whatever does, where are the great places to live? They always pick Midwestern college town. They're overwhelmingly white, you've got good healthcare systems, or you know, what's a good place to retire, that sort of thing. But if you look at that list of metros, they're almost all 
the very worst places to live if you're African-American, where the racial disparities are the starkest. Across almost any sort of educational or economic uh, or social measure, Gordon says his study focuses on the history of African-Americans specifically, but that this history also informs how other racial groups are treated in the Midwest as well. What you see also is that some of the assumptions and policies that affect African-Americans are imported onto other groups. Gordon said he was shocked to see just how bad things are to this day. I've studied this for a long time, and so I knew the sort of broad parameters. But when I pulled it all together, it was a slap in the face, not just to see that the disparities are still there, but just to see how wide they are. Here, Gordon will take us through the history of the migration of African Americans from the South to the Midwest, starting after the Civil War. He'll share the key findings of his study so we can understand how we got where we are and what we can do about it. First, let's get a lay of the land. The Midwest comprises 12 states, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. According to 2019 census data, 81% of the population in the Midwest is white compared to a national average of 76%. A little more than 10% of the Midwestern population is black, compared to 13.4% for the whole country. And in the Midwest, much of the black population is clustered in big cities like Chicago, Detroit, and Milwaukee. That means rural areas of the Midwest have much smaller black populations, down to as low as 1-2% to in states like South and North Dakota. There's also less immigration in the Midwest. 7.2% of the population is foreign-born, whereas the national average is almost double that. As you can see, the Midwest has a much more homogenous population than the rest of the country. And up until the early 1900s, it was even whiter than it is today. African-Americans, historically concentrated in the southern states, start to move north in what's known as the Great Migration in response to a series of factors, one of which is just the horror of living in the Jim Crow South in the wake of the Civil War. And so African-Americans who can get out often do. But more importantly, the sort of opportunities offered by the urban North, particularly during World War I and again in World War II, draw African-Americans out of the South and into Northern cities. The population of cities like Detroit and Milwaukee and Chicago, the African-American population, is minuscule at the beginning of the 20th century, but it grows very dramatically between about 1920 and 1950. During the Great Migration, nearly 7 million African Americans living in the South made the journey north seeking a better life. And there were particularly strong opportunities during the mobilization for World War I and World War II. At those times, not only was the economy booming, but so much of the regular workforce was overseas that this opened up much better jobs for African-Americans and for women as well in those wartime economies. Gordon said job opportunities ranged from factory jobs in meatpacking plants to auto manufacturing to construction to transportation jobs. But Gordon found that traveling north 
was no escape from discrimination and segregation. The population of those cities, the white homeowners and developers and city leaders, respond to what they view as the threat posed by the Great Migration and erect a sort of elaborate architecture of segregation. So a city like Chicago or St. Louis is much more racially segregated in the sense that African-Americans live in one part of town, whites live in another, than even cities in the South. So if you look at any sort of map that shows the racial distribution, you'll see in any city a sort of stark line, even today, between predominantly white neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are predominantly people of color, African-American or African-American and Latinx. As Gordon dug deeper, he found no effort from Midwesterners to welcome African-Americans into their communities. Instead, he found the opposite. The evidence is pretty clear that the mechanisms of segregation, in some respects, almost came first. Like African-Americans came into segregated settings. So, you know, St. Louis, for example, which is more sort of like a border city, had a small African-American population before the turn of the century. But almost as soon as they realized that African-Americans were going to start moving north, they passed a racial zoning ordinance in 1916, which says that African-Americans can only live in a few small neighborhoods in the city. And another good example of this is cities like Minneapolis put in those obstacles to African-American settlement long before any African-Americans in significant numbers settled in the city. Same in Milwaukee. And this is at the heart of Gordon's findings. Planned and enforced segregation, even before Black communities began to settle in Midwestern cities, is the root cause of why racial inequality is worse in the Midwest than in any other place in the U.S., even the South. Southern cities developed in a system where white families had houses that faced the street and black families had houses that faced the alley and they worked in the white family's houses. So you don't get the sort of stark pattern of segregation because of this pattern of domestic and agricultural labor. So whites and and African-Americans are much more likely to work in close proximity to each other historically in the South, even if the relationship was nowhere near equal. In the Midwest, Gordon found a second form of residential segregation as well. What sociologists call hypervisibility. As we covered before, most of the Midwest's Black population is clustered in big cities. That leaves rural communities predominantly white. Gordon reports that of the 1,055 counties in the Midwest, nearly two-thirds are over 95% white. In much of the rural and small metropolitan areas, you're one of one or two African-American families in a town. And that leads to a different pattern of discrimination in Iowa, where there's not a large African-American population. Things like school discipline, incarceration, police stops, unemployment, the gaps are really wide at the state and local level. One of the many problems with the Midwest segregation is the cascading effect it has on all other areas of life. And Gordon explains how that works in detail. But first, you may be wondering what I wondered. Since the Great Migration lasted all the way up to the 1970s, surely segregation wasn't legal all that time, right? The answer is both yes and no. Sickeningly, it was legal for longer than you might expect. And even after segregation was officially outlawed, Midwesterners found ways to keep it going. Here's how it evolved. In 1896, before the Great Migration began, the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy v. Ferguson that segregation was constitutional. 
This allowed cities to create zoning laws with white-only neighborhoods. Then, in 1917, after the Great Migration had begun, in Buchanan versus Worley, the Supreme Court found such zoning to be unconstitutional. But the reasoning didn't have to do with equal rights of all people. Racial zoning was deemed unconstitutional because it interfered with the property rights of homeowners. And instead of ending residential segregation, after this ruling, cities just found more covert ways of controlling where Black communities lived. So what took its place was a a number of sort of public-private strategies, one of which was to attach a covenant to a a property deed or to a subdivision that said, this house can never be sold to an African-American. And those were enforced by the courts into the late 1940s. What the courts held was that because it was a private contract, the Constitution didn't apply. Gordon didn't only find these agreements in large cities, either. I just did a project with some students here, looking through the old county records in Johnson County, where Iowa City is, to see if there were any of these race-restrictive deed agreements. And we found a whole lot of them, even though there were no African Americans living in Iowa City at the time. And, And not necessarily the most exclusive or expensive neighborhoods, but like you know, little pockets of white working class housing where the developer just said, I'm going to make a rule that, well, they would make a series of rules in that setting where, you know, your house has to be pulled out to wood, it has to be this far back from the street, and you can never sell to an African-American. The Supreme Court took another step in Shelley versus Kramer in 1948. What the court said was, we're not going to enforce those anymore because we don't want to be involved. But it wasn't until 1968 that the Supreme Court said, you can't even do that privately. And that's relatively recently, you know, in our history. Gordon's talking about the Civil Rights Act here, which was passed in 1964 and expanded in 68 with protections surrounding real estate. This ruling was a huge step toward equality, but was it enough to put an end to residential segregation? Not exactly. Every time the the courts strike down one of those formal forms of segregation, people find a a way around or another way of accomplishing the same thing. The legacy of white-only deeds had cemented racist ideas into the professional wisdom in the real estate industry. Commercial real estate industry creates and disseminates this idea that African-Americans are destructive of property values and just having them in the neighborhood is going to affect the value of your house. This was quite consciously an invented idea. It was not true. And of course, you repeat something like that often enough, you make an article of professional wisdom, and people start to believe it. And here's why housing segregation is so harmful. It creates what Gordon calls an interlocking system of concentrated disadvantage. For one thing, where we live is how we determine where we go to school. Neighborhoods were segregated, but what that meant was that schools were also segregated. You know, the residential segregation tends to sort of spiral out and affect other domains because it's the way we pay for public services. But also, when you concentrate people that are relatively poor in one part of the city, you also shape the distribution of private services. You get food deserts, for example, because grocery stores don't want to put a chain in the midst of of a group of poor people. And so that creates downstream problems because then the people who live in that neighborhood have to rely, you know, on the local gas station as a place to buy their food and the the quality of their food consumption drops and it comes at the cost of their health. 
Meanwhile, things like hospitals have also left the neighborhood for the suburbs, and so they have less access to health care. They're also less likely to work in jobs that give them job-based health care coverage. And so everything begins to sort of fit together in this interlocking system of concentrated disadvantage. Gordon has helped us connect the dots between the history of housing segregation in the Midwest and access to things like quality education, public services, and health care. Now, there's a second factor that Gordon discovered while conducting his research. The collapse of job opportunities. Good jobs are initially what drew African Americans to the Midwest. And up until the 1950s, job opportunities actually were better. Black workers could join unions, too, and use collective bargaining to protect against discrimination. But in the second half of the 20th century, just as we began to see some of the gains of the Civil Rights Act, good factory jobs began to dry up due to globalization and lower-wage competition in the South. From 1974 to 2016, Gordon found that the Midwest lost more than 2.5 million manufacturing jobs, a drop of more than 40%. Since the 80s, the Midwest has lost over 70% of its membership in manufacturing unions. These losses have hit the Midwest's Black population the hardest. In 10 Midwestern states, we have the worst disparities between Black and white unemployment rates, In education, all but three Midwestern states have the largest disparities in college graduation rates. Half of the states in the Midwest have the largest gaps between black and white homeownership, and wages are lower for black workers than in any other census region. As for income levels, nationally, the black median household income is just over 38,000, and in every Midwestern state, it's below 36,000. Gordon pointed out how important it is for people to understand the historical context that has led to the racial inequalities we see today. A lot of the current racist attitudes are created by the bad policies in the past. We segregated African-Americans into particular neighborhoods. Our economy eventually lost the good industrial jobs that those African-Americans relied on at a time when they couldn't really move out to the suburbs where the jobs were disappearing. So those neighborhoods became poorer and poorer. And so the schools closed and became even poorer still. But the sort of dominant explanation at the time was that oh, those people ruined their neighborhood. And that idea is sort of stuck and I think feeds contemporary racial assumptions. As part of Gordon's report, he recommends policy solutions to address these inequalities. There are two sort of broad goals, one of which is to raise the floor for everyone, what we often call sort of universalism. You know, if we had a minimum wage that was $15 instead of $7.25, that would make a big difference for everyone but it would make a bigger difference for those at the bottom of the labor market. Another example would be Medicare for all. If everyone had health insurance, regardless of where they worked, then that would set a much higher floor of well-being for people. But then to accompany that sort of universalism, we also need some targeted policies. Because even if you raise the wage floor, for example, that's no guarantee that employers won't discriminate against workers. So within that higher wage economy, we need to to lessen the ability of employers to engage in that discrimination by fully enforcing our civil rights laws and that sort of thing. And on something like housing, we need to both raise the floor for everyone, but also target those neighborhoods 
that have been so much left in the dust by a century of policy. We obviously need to spend more in those central city neighborhoods that are suffering so badly. There, universalism would be a mistake because not everyone needs the same kind of assistance. So we need to redress some of the damage we've done in the past by targeting particular populations and particular places. The problems that have led to the racial inequality we see today are big. They're deeply entrenched and they're deeply troubling. And as Gordon has pointed out, they're not going to go away without a serious and concerted effort on a policy level. And until we do this, Gordon says the Midwest's reputation for being nice and neighborly is little more than a facade. I sort of think it's bullshit. Every region of the country has a version of that claim, right? That this is a great place to live because people look out for each other or that sort of thing. I think it's universally true that, you know, some people are nice and some people aren't, and some people are nice to people who are like them and not to people who aren't like them. And I think that's a more sort of universal human condition than something that's generated by whether you live in Iowa or whether you live in New Jersey. Based on Alejandra's impressions, passive aggressive would be a better description for Iowa than nice. There's definitely like a lot of the overly nice sometimes where it's like, I kind of just wish you would just say whatever it is that you are trying to say. Even if people start being genuinely nice, it's going to take a lot more than that to solve these problems. But Alejandra says she does think it's important for people to start on a personal level by addressing their own racism. Racist people are nice. Racist people don't have bad intentions. Racist people don't think that they're racist. And that's honestly the problem. Like, they don't recognize that within themselves. They think that they're just, you know, making a joke or making a little comment and there's some truth to it. So, you know, what's wrong? And they get defensive about it. And I think it's important to tell them, like, you're not bad for thinking those things. It's totally human nature to have thoughts like that. But it's also within human nature to act in an empathetic way and choose to express yourself in a way that's not going to be hurtful. And I just think that it's something that doesn't get talked about enough or doesn't really get taught. So it just kind of continues the problem because if we ignore it, you know, I'm nice, I'm not racist, then you're not going to catch yourself when you might hurt someone else's feelings, you know, and that doesn't make you a nice person. It just makes you ignorant. And Alejandra is an example of what a difference it can make when people do show a little extra care and thoughtfulness. When she was 11 and still learning English, she was pretty much thrown in the deep end at school. As she struggled to keep up, one teacher made the difference between sinking and swimming. She had this little dictionary that she always had on hand, and she always called me pumpkin. And I didn't understand what that was until I realized it was pumpkin. And it was, I just made me like her so much more. She was so sweet to me. And if I looked confused or I didn't know what I was doing, she would pause the class, talk to me in half English, half Spanish until I understood what was going on. And that way I was able to participate in the class. She even had me read um, Green Eggs and Ham in Spanish in front of the class. And that really meant a lot to me back then because I was feeling like I'm getting involved. I'm, I'm getting to share who I am. So she made a huge difference for me coming here. As I mentioned earlier, Zone closed down his restaurant in Batavia, but he's not giving up on the Midwest just yet. He just opened his restaurant in Burlington a town of nearly 25,000, where he continues to serve fine Italian cuisine. 
Zone's aware that all he can do is keep going and focus on what's within his control and on enjoying his life with his family. But he says it would be a lot easier without having to fight all the little messages he receives throughout his days that try to bring him down. We have been conditioned. My skin is not a detriment to to society. And I I don't know, it's just, it's exhausting, like you said, but it's, we've been conditioned. We've been conditioned to feel that we are inferior. We're not valued. We don't, we don't really matter. In the scale of things, to them, to some, we just don't matter. We got a long way to go. We really do, we got a long way to go. Thank you for listening to Thread the Needle, a podcast that explores the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of our lives. I'm Donna Cleveland, the host and producer of Thread the Needle. Thread the Needle's theme song is by Mira Oberdyke. Original music is by Taylor Ross and episode artwork is by Chosie Titus. Thank you to Molly Bloom of American Public Media for being my mentor. This is the last episode of season one of Thread the Needle. I'll be taking a break and we'll be back next spring for season two. If you have a topic or story you'd like me to cover in season two, please email me at podcastattheneedle.co. I'm still ironing out all the details for season two, so now is a great time to give me some input. Also, if you haven't already, please take a minute and go leave a review for Thread the Needle. It will help other people like you find this show. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm looking forward to being back next spring with season two.